and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. One of the things that continues to surprise me, although it shouldn't after all this time, is the extent to which corporations, governments, institutions engage in large-scale denial. When their own actions are proven harmful to humanity or even to a specific group of people, and yet they deny responsibility. Why is it that we continue to let this happen? And how is it that the people who run those corporations are able to engage in such industrial strength denial, as my guest Barbara Fries calls it? From slavery to climate change, denial has been a part of organizations and institutions for hundreds of years. And in the middle of a pandemic, when we're all trying to figure out what is the best path forward, it's really important to understand how denial can affect decisions that policymakers are making and how we can stand up for our own rights and what it is that we need to do to get through this together. Barbara Fries was struck by corporate denial when she was cross-examining coal industry witnesses who were disputing the science of climate change. And her latest book is called Industrial Strength Denial, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible from the Slave Trade to Climate Change. Barbara Fries, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So your book is incredibly timely. Uh, We are going through all kinds of denials at the moment, as per probably we have been uh, at least in the last uh, four years, if not the last 40 years. And also you start with a story about a a kind of corporate denial that I hadn't really considered, but that is also incredibly timely given that we are in the middle of a racial injustice movement. So I want to start right there. And can can you tell me about sort of this choice to start with um, a description of how how people who are involved in in enslaving individuals, you know, were, were able to convince themselves this was a good idea? Right. Yes. I, you know, I was nervous about going into the slave trade and and analyzing those denials uh, simply because it is just such a painful time in human history and such a, a sort of emotional thing even to read about. And I wondered, since it was so old, how relevant it would be. But in terms of my research, I realized that the slave trade, and I'm talking now about the slave trade in Britain, uh, and Britain dominated the the international slave trade in uh, the 1700s. That trade was very organized, and it faced a um, a very organized abolition movement at the end of the 1700s. And the uh, the various uh, traders and plantation owners joined together to form the slave lobby, and they responded with a very organized campaign of denial that was first of all, just way too interesting not to put into the book, and also in many ways quite relevant to the denials I would find later in industries in the 20th and 21st century. So tell me a little bit about these denials. What what were the arguments they were making and how did they kind of come to them? Well, they were faced, well, just to back up for a moment, it's important to realize how legitimate 
the slave trade was considered to be in Britain. And there were many, many shareholders in these various enterprises. And they ranged from the royal family to many members of parliament all through the class system, including the, you know, the small business folks, particularly in Liverpool, where it was a huge local industry. So it, you know, what are the abolitionists going to do in the face of this very entrenched industry? Well, what they did was come up with evidence of the brutality of slavery. And they were able to, to bring forth former slaves, um, former uh, members of the slave ship crew, the, the uh, torture devices. I mean, they really had a very evidence-based argument and, and they spread it and it, was, and it was being pretty successful. So the slave lobby had to decide how do they respond to that. And rather than just say, oh, well, no, it really isn't all that brutal. They came back with, you know, they, they kind of tried to flip it around and actually came back with a sort of rescue narrative. And so we have the slave traders arguing that, in fact, uh, the, the Africans want to be purchased when they arrive, when the traders arrive in Africa, they actually kind of market themselves. They're, they're eager to be bought, uh, that they have a pleasant voyage across the Atlantic and they're singing and they're dancing and playing games of chess and they give them fun little amusements. And then they explain that when they got to the, the sugar plantations of the Caribbean, which is where most of these slaves went, they ended up in these very comfortable plantations with a comfy little cottage, and uh, they would be taken care of if they got sick. They'd be taken care of if they were old. It was a it was a cradle to grave welfare system, uh, as portrayed by the slave lobby. And um, this, you know, does seem to have undermined the support for abolition. But I think what was really particularly clever about this narrative was that not only then does it make slavery not brutal, but it makes abolition brutal. And, and they argued that. They argued that if you were to abolish this trade, that all of these Africans would be put to death because they were prisoners of war, or they would die in a famine, or they would be eaten by cannibals. And so you would be shutting the gates of mercy on mankind. And and so they, they just very neatly tried to flip it around so that... Um, you know, it was it was actually abolition that was the problem. One of the quotes from a trader was that if you were to abolish the actually abolish slavery, which wasn't really what they were talking about yet, they were still just talking about whether they were going to abolish bringing new slaves over from Africa. Uh, but the argument from this trader was that abolition would uh, cram liberty down the throats of people incapable of digesting it. I need to pause for a minute because that's yeah. a lot to swallow. Yeah. And this is a common theme throughout the different cases that you talk about in your book. But I, I'd like you to sort of explain how you think people who were making these claims were were able to make them. I mean, were they, you know, the, you they could be just outright lying or they could be uninformed or they could be misinformed. So let's talk about this case in particular. I mean, did, did people who were part of the slave lobby believe what they were saying? You know, I, I find it 
impossible to believe that they did, certainly when they're talking about the conditions on the ships, for example. I mean, the, the slave ships are, are notoriously horrendous. And actually, I think this it's only in this chapter that I am I'm quite clear in saying, well, this is obviously a lie. <laughs> for the most part, I don't try to distinguish between uh, lies and, and self-deception or some form of psychological denial. But what I think happens, certainly in this case, uh, is that the slave traders, the people who actually knew the conditions were lying, but the people who wanted so desperately to believe them they were probably indulging in denial. And, uh, you know, that was particularly the case because Britain had self-image of being um, very uh, humane and, and valuing freedom more highly than other nations. So for them to ad- accept that this prominent industry was so brutal was an enormous challenge to their self-image. And also, to be clear, they loved the sugar. It was delicious. And to find out that it was, you know, steeped in this kind of brutality wasn't something that they wanted to accept. So let's talk about denial as a psychological phenomenon. Is it, you know, do, do you have a definition for it that includes some reference to whether the person is consciously aware that 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 the truth is is you know like how how would you define it that way right well i i use the term very broadly to include both lying just simply denying something even if you are consciously aware that it's true and being in denial so i really don't try to make that distinction between between those two things, I, I decided early on that it was almost impossible to write this book if I was going to try to parse between there. Also, I just think they are so entwined. I mean, there's one theory about how is it that we evolved denial, uh, psychological denial, the ability to uh, deceive ourselves, and and the you know suggestion there is that we we evolved it, evolved this skill to make us better liars because then we wouldn't have a tell, right? We wouldn't show in our eyes when we were deceiving. Um, so I do think they're very entrenched. I also think what happens is you may be lying about the core issue, but then you are deceiving yourself or, or involved in a more elaborate rationalization to rationalize the lie. So if you're a tobacco executive, for example, deep in your heart, you've got to know this is going to make people sick and it's addictive. Um, but then you, you still say you don't believe that. And then you go on to say, well, this isn't such a harmful thing because everybody lies or because it would be a worse world without my tobacco. And I begin the book with a quote from a head of Philip Morris who who says, who knows what you'd do if you didn't uh, smoke? You might beat your wife. You might drive cars fast. Um, so that's an example, I think, of this uh, effort that people make to tell themselves that even if they are lying, it's not that harmful. Yeah, and and that the alternative is worse. I think that's the to me that that seems a common theme in the book that you know that there's a lot of like well, you know there's nothing's going to be perfect and right and that's of course what the slave lobby did in arguing that all of these Africans would be put to death if we didn't essentially rescue them and take them to these comfy plantations. So I think one of the uh, uh, other sort of real strengths of your your book is that you talk about the complexity of these denials and how they are uh, perpetuated and sort of the the many different tools that we need to employ in order to fight them it's not there's not just one simple answer <laughs> and you know i thought this was particularly uh, relevant to you know when we talk about the slave trade and ultimately 
all the repercussions that have happened in the hundreds of years since then, uh, including now some of the ways in which people are starting to accept that that they were in denial uh, as we now are in this new racial injustice movement. And, and, you know, so, you know, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about sort of the long-term repercussions of the arguments that get made even 400 years ago, if they are strong arguments as, as the one that you just mentioned, you know, and, and what is it about the arguments that has staying power, even though we know ultimately they're wrong? Well, I think one of the things that gives these arguments so much staying power is um, one of the psychological theories I I mentioned in the book of, of system justification, that you just don't want to believe that you are living in a system that is fundamentally unjust. And, and it's not just the people who are at the top of systems who want to believe they're just. It's, it's people lower down as well who, who seem to be victims of those systems. They generally want to believe they're just. And, and so when they are confronted with evidence of injustice, it takes a lot to overcome that denial. I think there is a built-in denial in the, in the public. And, you know, as you were talking, I was, I was just thinking the the slogan that the abolitionists used when confronting slavery, they actually put together this seal of an image of a kneeling slave. And the slogan, and this was very popular in, in Britain at the time, was, am I not a man and a brother? And it was their direct effort to try to confront the dehumanization that made the slave trade possible. And it's hard not to remember that when you look at the slogan, Black Lives Matter, which seems to me also to be a very direct challenge to the dehumanization that has been part of the, of the systemic racism and, and the police violence that we've seen. So there, there's these interesting parallels, I think, between those things. Now, of course, we have that movement actually led by Black people as opposed to white abolitionists a, a few centuries ago. But um, I do think that that parallel is a big one. Um, you know, in terms of the lasting effect, I think that many many cases, certainly going back to the slave trade, they basically kind of tapped into human psychology and figured out how to exploit that. So for example, they would tap into nationalism and say, if you abolish this trade, then France would take over and we'd become a a province of France. And, And you'd see that going on and on through different industries. More recently, I think you do see, uh, corporations much more strategically coming up with arguments and then, when they work, other industries see that and under other industries can copy that. Plus, you've got this kind of um, helper industry with the public relations folks, advertising lawyers and, and kind of anti-regulatory think tanks who kind of master various strategies, creating front groups, for example. And then they can go from industry to industry. So we, we definitely have a, you know, a thread tying a lot of these industries together. And so it's not simply, you know, finding the better slogan uh, that that sort of leads to a, a change of heart and, um, you know, a reversal of the denial. Right. No. And well, in the case, if we're going back to the parallel between the slave trade and and today, I think, you know, if you look at the how many people became so concerned after George Floyd, all the protests and and multi-generational and multi-racial. And and if you look at the polls about approval of Black Lives Matter, 
it kind of feels like the denial that had been built up for so long just got popped. And, and I think that is also what happened in Britain in the late 1700s, that, that people finally realized, okay, it is worse than we thought. It is as horrible as they said, and we have to change that. It, it does feel like a parallel moment in that sense. And is that true of, of, of all or some of the other kind of uh, cases that you describe where there's a kind of tipping point? All of a sudden, tobacco goes from being, ah, oh, it's not that bad to, you know, it's cancer. Yeah, well, right? that, to the extent there was a tipping point in tobacco, it, it was largely um, a tipping point related to how the public felt about the industry. There was a steep rise in scorn against the industry, I would say, in the 1990s, largely because there were all these whistleblower documents released and documents released through litigation showing a lot about what that industry had been doing. So um, the, the knowledge that this was deadly, that it was addictive, that it even hurt people who were not smokers, that kind of grew fairly gradually. But it was when public opinion really turned against the tobacco industry, it wasn't because of the science so much as finding out what they had been doing. Um, in ozone, though, the, in, in the case of ozone depletion caused by chlorofluorocarbons, you did have a pretty fast tipping point because of the discovery of the ozone hole. So that's one case where a good, solid scientific fact came in there and, and really changed things. So I want to talk a little bit about corporate denial as a something separate from, you know, an individual denial and, and sort of how that works. And, and you know, you, you have this great analogy of the corporation as a psychopath. So I wondered if you could describe that and, and tell us why you think it's relevant. Right. Well, I, I don't use that uh, so much as Joel Bakken, who called it, it a psychopath in, in his book. But and, and as he pointed out, and, and I would echo, it doesn't mean, of course, that the people working for them are psychopaths, but that if, if you think of it of an individual as having you know, a selfish side, a side of us that wants to pursue our own self-interest. Um, but, but as individuals, that is balanced by the side that doesn't want to hurt others and that wants to contribute to society, the pro-social side. That's a normal kind of human psyche. And I think you'll find a strong evolutionary basis supporting both of those sides. In a corporation, though, uh, we create these entities that are basically, uh, reward and and amplify the focus on the pursuit of profit, while at the same time muting the social responsibility. And we do that in a lot of ways. One of them is just the basic legal way of saying that shareholders have lim limited liability. So if a corporation hurts somebody uh, and gets sued, the, the shareholders are not considered to blame legally. So that has a powerful legal impact, obviously, but it also, I think, has a psychological impact. Though there are lots of other aspects, psychological aspects, that I think diminish any sense of responsibility within a corporation. Certainly, the diffusion of responsibility that comes from division of labor and the separation of management from ownership. For one thing, if you are a CEO of a company and you're, you're causing some harm and you're hiding it or you're lying about it or you're, you know, in some form of denial, but well, let's go back to lying. Let's say you're lying about it. You wouldn't necessarily feel guilty because it wouldn't feel like a, a personal 
act of deception. It could very well feel like a form of loyalty to those shareholders to whom you feel you owe an obligation. And, um, and actually, that brings me to another important aspect here, and that's ideology, the ideology of the marketplace, which has gotten really more and more extreme in recent decades and, and um, of course, goes back even to, you know, say, Adam Smith and, and the invisible hand. And the, the notion that the invisible hand of the marketplace means you only need to pursue your own self-interest and it will transform into the public interest, into the public good. And that, of course, is the case a lot of the time. That's what the whole idea of capitalism is based on and, and the whole idea of trade. But then things, you know, got a lot more extreme. And, and we saw in 1970, uh, Milton Friedman wrote uh, an influential article arguing that the only responsibility, the only legitimate responsibility of a CEO is to maximize shareholder profits. And any if you have a CEO saying or a company saying that they're concerned about the environment or about anything else, then that is socialism. That is not a legitimate thing for them to be doing. And so that, you know, strain of thought definitely took root and kept growing and got more extreme, particularly, I would say, in the 80s and 90s with a, a, the more... Uh, you know, sort of passionate libertarian, and, and I don't mean the side of the of, of the libertarian movement that is, you know, leave me alone and let me do what I want. I mean the side that says, leave my corporation alone, even if we are causing harm, and keep the government out of this and, and have faith that market powers will fix it all. Uh, and, and that then, of course, led to all kinds of deregulation of the financial services industry and was one of the arguments used by all of these little and not so little um, anti-regulatory right-wing groups confronting the science uh, for many different industries facing regulation. And it has a big played a big part in our inability to address climate change. And is it still based on this now false, now that we know it's a false notion that um, individuals in the marketplace act rationally, you know, and, and uh, sort, of, sort of the opposite of the, the dumber, nicer, weaker. Um, uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know. yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're referring to the, to the rise of behavioral economics, right? And how the traditional view that humans are selfish and, um, you know, and that we are always out to just maximize our self-interest, that has now been challenged, we realize, based on actually looking at how humans behave, that we're much more complicated and we have many other features driving us and we are social creatures. And yet that insight doesn't seem to have penetrated the faith in market powers that is preventing regulation, nor indeed did the financial crisis or, or the climate crisis. So this is a pretty robust uh, belief, and it is backed up by so much money um, that it's going to take some real effort to get beyond it. And I think it's interesting, though, that maybe this is a trend that's been only around for the last 10 years, or, or maybe it's much longer than that. I don't know. But there seems to be this um, notion that entrepreneurs these days not only want to start a company to make a lot of money, they want to change the world for the better. You know, I suspect that a lot of people um, feel that way when they go into business, whether starting a new company or or they're just 
joining an existing one. And I could, I could point to the radium industry, which is one of the chapters I write. And the person who launched the biggest radium company in the U.S. explained that he was doing it to, to um, cure cancer. Now, he was already a, a sort of failed snake oil salesman, as well as an industrialist, an interesting person. Um, but he certainly claimed to, to have that goal. And I would imagine that that most people have something of that in them when they're going to business. And, and certainly people want to, to feel like they can make a whole lot of money by doing good things and not by hurting the world. So yeah, I, I don't know that that's um, necessarily new. I hope it's rising. I think it kind of ebbs and flows. Uh, I think it ebbed in the in the 80s and 90s. Um, and, and maybe now it's coming back a bit. So I want to turn now to an industry that I think got you started on on this this book uh, and this project, and that is the fossil fuel industry and how it affects climate change. So can you take us to the moment uh, when you were cross-examining you know, scientists, you know, in your role as assistant attorney general in Minnesota and how, how it all led to this book? Yes, I will do that. So yeah, I was an assistant attorney general in Minnesota, and I represented our pollution control agency. And Minnesota had this proceeding where we were trying to estimate the cost to the environment of generating electricity, which mostly came from coal back then in our state. And so we looked at climate change. And the, the um, coal industry didn't like that. And they intervened in our proceeding and brought lots of witnesses who testified that we did not have to worry about climate change and it wasn't going to happen. And all those scientists, um, the, the IPCC, the, the other scientists on whose, uh, uh, based on whose work the, the Earth Summit Treaty had already been signed, that all of those scientists were essentially biased by money or by some sort of nefarious political agenda. So this was basically my introduction to climate change. I had never dealt with that before and to the coal industry and to corporate denial. And it was shocking. And um, ultimately I, I wrote a book. First, I wrote a book about coal and human history uh, after leaving the attorney general's office to write that. And then I went back and practiced law by trying to stop new coal plants from being built and, and as a policy analyst. And then over the years, I saw more and more climate denial and I saw it basically seep from the industry and the, and the far right of the Republican Party into the party and, and ultimately purge from the party anybody who was trying to work on on climate change. And, and now, of course, we have a climate denier in the White House. And this was such a stunning thing for me to watch that it really illustrated, I thought, the, oh, the power of corporate denial, uh, not just within an industry, but its ability to influence society. And that's really what got me interested in this book and and trying to figure out what industrial denial had done in the past to humanity, you know, how far from reality it had taken us and how much influence it had and how, uh, how it had been overcome uh, by other social forces to the extent that it had. So let's talk about the state of affairs in terms of uh, climate change denial. Where are we? I mean, it, I think the at least you know when it comes to the listeners of this show you know we we understand that that there's a there's truth here and that um you know there we we've talked about that a lot and so often it's hard for us to imagine the scope of denial that continues to to rage on so can you can you kind of give us a lay of the land 
Sure. And, and I do try, I have a chapter on the fossil fuel industry, and I include in that chapter the organizations that are, have been funded by the fossil fuel industry over the years, because a lot of the denial was sort of spun off into these other groups. And I try to differentiate between, say, big oil, uh, which actually at this point, I mean, despite having played an enormous role in promoting doubt about climate over the decades, they now, you know, don't technically qualify as climate deniers anymore. You've got ExxonMobil saying, you know, we, we get it, we see this is real, and we actually support the Paris Accord, the Paris Agreement, and, and trying to reduce emissions. Um, and, and I'm not sure they've quite said we endorse two degrees, but of course, that is the goal, staying, keeping warming well below two degrees centigrade from pre-industrial times and the target of trying to get to 1.5 degrees. Um, I, I'm not sure Exxon has ever explicitly said they endorse those targets, but they say they support the Paris Agreement. Now, of course, if we have any chance at all of achieving those targets, that means making dramatic changes in our emissions, like if you want to get to 1.5 degrees, reducing emissions by 50% by 2030 and getting down to net zero by 2050. Uh, and if you're going to try to go for two degrees, you have a, a little more time, and, and you, but you still have to reduce by, I think it's 25% by 2030. So uh, the reason I raise these statistics here is that you may have folks like ExxonMobil saying, we get it, this is a problem, something has to be done, um, and we support Paris. But if you look at their own projections, their energy projections, their emission projections, and, and they issue these reports, uh, it's either every year, I think it's every year, or, or maybe every two years, um, these are very important things because they base their investment decisions on them. And what they're projecting is that emissions keep going up, 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 and then maybe sort of plateau by 2040, which is the end of their projection. And of course, they continue to explore and keep trying to sell their product as enthusiastically as possible. So we have this weird situation where they, they perpetuated lots of denial. Now they're not really quite in denial when it comes to the rhetoric but they are very much when it comes to their actions. Um, meanwhile, there are lots of other industries. The coal industry has always been the most extreme on this point, and they remain the most extreme, and they will still be arguing this is a hoax. They'll still argue that uh, CO2 is good for the world and, and yields enormous benefits, and we shouldn't hesitate to, to pump it out. At the same time, they're trying to promote the, the future of carbon capture technology, which is a, you know, a bit inconsistent. And then you've got the coke the uh, industries and, and the network of groups around them, they're still very deeply climate deniers. So yeah, and, and, and the groups, you know, if you look at these groups that have been spewing out the most vitriolic climate denial, um, you'll see that some of them long ago were funded by ExxonMobil. They, ExxonMobil got in trouble and they, they sort of pulled back. They still fund some climate denial, but not the most extreme groups. Then you saw the Koch uh, network funding a lot of these groups. Uh, then they sort of got some heat. And then you saw a lot of the funding essentially going underground and getting channeled through these dark money groups so that now it's actually hard to know who is funding these groups. Uh, one of them actually has had a, a kind of a conflict with ExxonMobil, uh, ExxonMobil wanted to do something not quite as extreme as this group did, and, and the leader of the group, this is the Heartland Institute, 
called ExxonMobil part of the anti-energy global warming movement. I believe those were the words. So you've got this weird sort of conflict. But what that means is that, you know, ExxonMobil can say the right thing now, but still benefit from denial among groups uh, that it, it supported in the past. And so, you know, we, we have just basically a, a huge political mess. And by the way, the the groups that it supported, the most extreme groups, and of course, the coal industry, the most extreme members of the coal industry, ended up having enormous power in the Trump administration. Uh, Andrew Wheeler, the head of the EPA, used to represent one of the most extreme uh, coal industries and, and head by, headed up by a very vocal climate denier. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're in a, a very strange situation where the most vocal climate denial comes from groups that are now really outflanking the oil industry. And normally then you could just sort of dismiss them, except they have such influence in the administration. You know, it kind of made me wonder whether we are approaching a tipping point um, as some of these companies, as you mentioned, Exxon and and other kind of uh, fossil fuel you know, related companies are starting to put out green initiatives. They're starting to make advertisements that actually tout their commitment to fighting climate change and, and providing, you know, renewable energy sources, et cetera. And it, it, it made me wonder if this is kind of what was happening in the tobacco industry when they started releasing things like light cigarettes. So that that's a tacit, you know, uh, admitting, you know, they're admitting that there's, you know, there's a reason to have a light cigarette. It's not nearly as harmful as the regular cigarette, which means the regular cigarette is hard, you know what I mean? So I wondered, like, is, is there a parallel to be drawn between those two? It, I think perhaps there is, there is, there are some really interesting parallels between tobacco and fossil fuels here. I mean, tobacco did put out lighter cigarettes, filtered cigarettes, with the implication they were healthier, although they still never admitted during this era that, that there was a problem. So maybe, and, and of course they did that to make their customers feel better and to take some of the pressure off of the industry. Uh, and, and so the very fact that oil companies in particular are more inclined to try to not look like they're just dismissing this issue, I think is, is in fact a reflection that they are feeling more heat from the public. So that's great. But what happened with tobacco and has happened with oil industry is that they then stop denying in terms of the you know the actual fact of the problem. The tobacco companies around 2000 and a few years later came around and said, "Yep, it's addictive. Sorry, we've been well. They never said sorry, but they had been denying that for a long time. Uh, and then and they also came around to say, and yes, it kills lots and lots and lots of people. That did not, however, change how enthusiastically they would try to sell their product. Uh, and with oil companies now, they have come to the point where they say, yes, it's causing climate change, but they are nowhere near trying to, you know, decide to, to wind down. And of course, you know, I don't know what capitalism just is not set up for this situation to have a major industry that essentially needs to go away in the next 30 years, but, or transform itself. It's just not set up for this. So it's hard to exactly imagine what's going to happen. I would not expect, uh, certainly from the oil companies to just say, okay, we're going to, we're going to stop selling oil to the extent we're looking for a tipping point. I would look forward in the voting public. And, uh, hopefully we are also reaching that. Certainly, it became much more of an issue in the Democratic primaries. Uh, we're also seeing concern rising among younger Republicans. Um, obviously, it's been knocked out of the headlines uh, 
But I do hope it comes back, certainly before the election, and then stays in the headlines for a long time. So I'd like to remind our listeners that Barbara Fries's book, Industrial Strength Denial, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible from the Slave Trade to Climate Change is now available at booksellers everywhere. And I wondered if we could end on a, a similar note that your book does, which is quite optimistic, uh, despite, you know, the the way you document with so much research, the, just the extent of the denial and how you know, how entrenched it is. And yet you end with a note of optimism. Um, Well, I I do try to end with a note of optimism. I have to admit, I had to dig deep to to, to come up with that. And, And I actually try to focus in each chapter as well about the forces that brought the denial to an end. And, and what gives me optimism when I think about this issue is the fact that in each of these cases, People did stand up against enormous odds, and in some cases they were scientists, in some cases activists, a lot of people who who stood up against denial, who drew attention to the issue, media paid attention, lawsuits were brought, movements were formed, uh, and democracy ultimately responded to those movements by passing laws, and they may not have made all of these problems go away, but they made all of them better, and some of them really did go away in terms of banning the practice or the product in question. Um, so I think to find optimism, you have to look outside the corporation and look at society as a whole, at all of these other forces that in the past have pushed back against corporations, against industries that were causing harm and, and denying it, and won. Now, it's obviously more difficult if your democracy is less responsive to what um, the public actually wants or to what the public good is, uh, because it is so beholden to the corporate interests and, and, and so much in need of their money. So we have a couple of, you know, we have a, a double problem here. One is to get um, the, well, speaking focused mainly on climate change, trying to get that uh, turned around so that we can try to rein it in but also trying to reduce the power of corporations uh, over our democracy. But uh, again, I I see a lot of change uh, in in terms of how young people in particular are looking at capitalism and looking at the role of government. We've seen the pendulum swing at least three times uh, back and forth on this issue in the 20th and 21st century. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping for another swing of the pendulum. And in your book, you give us seven stories of essentially where that pendulum swung back in the right direction. Yes. I mean, it, it, it didn't necessarily swing as far as one might have liked in all of these cases, but the pendulum does swing. And, um, you know, in, in, in terms of corporate power, it, it often comes, the, these changes often come in larger waves, like the laws passed in the 60s and 70s, like the laws passed in the in the New Deal. And so I think it is you know, historically interesting that we are talking now about a Green New Deal, which would be a larger packet of things that that would involve not necessarily climate alone, but but other things. And given how much opposition there is to things like Citizens United, um, I, I you know I, I think this is something that democracy can deal with. It's just that with the built-in barriers, we need well more than a majority to be pushing for it. And we also see a lot of laws being at least put put on the table uh, in terms of the racial injustice movement. Mm-hmm. So a lot of work left to do. And so um, you you are very well equipped to do it. I don't want to keep you from your work any longer. Um, <laughs> Barbara Fries, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Oh, well, thank you for having me. 
So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. We could not do this podcast without you. Thank you for your continued and long-term support. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis, and I'll see you next week.